Hey guys, just a heads up, something weird happened with the equipment as I was recording my intro spiel for this episode. I sound like a chipmunk with a cheap microphone, but whatever the problem was, it resolved itself after about a minute and the rest of the episode is fine. So, uh, if it sounds weird, it's not you, it's us, but it ends quickly. Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. I'm Connor. And the topic for this episode is the need for behavior in neuroscience. And uh, the paper that we read to focus this conversation is called Neuroscience Dean's Behavior, Correcting a Reductionist Bias. And the first author is John Krakow from Johns Hopkins University. This is... um, a little unusual for us because this is a very timely, uh, timely topic. <laughs> it just came out about a week ago as we record this. And uh, yeah, it's got people talking a bit um, because it makes some bold claims about the current state of neuroscience and uh, the future that the authors intend. Uh, it also is somewhat related to the episode we did on neuroscience versus psychology, but that episode we read a paper that was written by psychologists saying kind of, we don't need this much neuroscience in psychology. And this is a little more, I guess, neuroscientists saying we would welcome a little bit more of a psychology perspective or behavior perspective or looking at things at different levels of understanding. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's people who are more closely associated with neuroscientists arguing for a sort of broader interpretation or a more inclusive interpretation or pluralistic interpretation of, of what neuroscience should include. Yeah, maybe before we get into the paper itself, we can kind of talk about like we think of as behavior in neuroscience and the current state of neuroscience. And maybe as part of that, we can explain kind of these divisions that exist in neuroscience that you see if you go on like a neuroscience department website, you know, the the researchers will be organized by different words that describe different types of neuroscience (laughs) that no one really agrees on the meaning of but uh, behavioral neuroscience is sometimes one of those categories. So we can talk about what is behavioral neuroscience or what is behavior in neuroscience. I mean, I think there's sort of one very clear sense uh, in the history of studying the brain that maybe before invasive experiments were as common as they are now, it, it seemed, I think, more natural to study animals behaviorally. And I, I mean... I think that was in, in some ways like the dominant way that people studied animals for a long time was obviously like non-invasively. A, a lot of early neuroscience was very limited in terms of looking at a very small number of cells or like single cells. So I mean like early physiology that was trying to record from cells, you know, would record from a single axon like the the famous, you know, giant uh the squid giant axon that, you know, it's like one axon that got studied a lot. And I think gradually as the technology has, has changed and maybe by certain, certain measures very rapidly recently, people have become excited by being able to record from lots of neurons or, you know, like starting in the nineties using fMRI and recording from many sources in the brain uh, simultaneously. And so sort of over time, the technologies allowed us to look into the brains of animals. And I guess maybe the context is that, especially when these technologies first come out, the behavior actually gets restricted. So instead of looking jointly at interest, like animals engaging or humans engaging in interesting behaviors while recording from their brain, uh, you have to actually immobilize or, you know, restrict the movement of the person or animal that you're recording from. So like in an fMRI situation, people are, are, are usually kind of laying down and, and not moving much at all because that would interfere with the ability to record signals from them. And certainly in a lot of experimental settings when people record from animals, the animals are, are kind of only limitedly behaving um, because uh, it's difficult to do both things at the same time, which used to, that is to say capture interesting behavior 
or, or have the animal engage in interesting behavior and record from them. And so very recently there have been kind of different branches of this where sometimes people do, you know, kind of what's called awake behaving neuroscience experiments where the animal is like awake and moving around. I mean, which is sort of an obvious contrast to something that was clearly dominant and, and I mean, in some sense problem, problematic, but what was doable like 40 years ago when people did experiments on cats, the cats were literally asleep. They were um, anesthetized, yeah. Yeah, when, when, they're, when they're, their neurons in their brain are being recorded from. So like, you know, now people are moving towards awake behaving experiments, but at the same time, there's a bunch of experiments that are going on still in the contemporary neuroscience world where the animal is like totally fixed and you're kind of going more for like number of neurons. So like, like take the animal and the animal's still not doing something very interesting, but you're trying to record from as many neurons as possible. So basically, there's generally a trade-off between having kind of complex methods that are letting you get at neurons or something related to neural activity versus letting the animal behave freely. The methods require usually some sort of stabilized setup that doesn't move easily with the animal. So like, yeah, like an MRI machine is giant and heavy, and so people are, are inside of that, and like for animals, maybe the, the animal is either anesthetized in older experiments or, or more commonly now has limited range of mobility or something yeah, like they that. might be awake but their head is fixed and they're looking at a screen or something like that and that's kind of how they're engaging in some sort of behavior but it's very limited movement but of course there, i mean there we should, should be contextualized like there are people who have you know uh you can you can put electrodes on an animal and have the electrodes wirelessly transmit signals and that's like a thing that people do or uh you know, have have there be some sort of tether, but it's like a loose tether, so the animal can kind of move around or hop around or whatever. Yeah, so in mouse experiments, um, they use the tethering method a bit to have the animal, especially if they want to um, investigate something like navigation, you know, you need to have the animal be able to move freely while you're recording or stimulating certain areas. And in bird song, I believe, is when they use the, the wireless ones the most, um, so that the birds can have free movement. This Ulanovsky in Israel is building this big tunnel thing, right, where he can have bats that can fly, like, hundreds of meters while potentially doing recordings, I think, maybe, with wireless stuff. No. Yeah, and so wireless. Or, wireless or not, or not even wireless. You can also have stuff where you, uh, you know, log data recorded from the brain onto a little, like, a flash drive or something that's attached to the animal. And then pick it up later. That's cool. Pick it up later. Um, so yeah, the desire to have the animals be able to move more freely um, has kind of always been there. It's just the technology has lagged and people are making you know, strong efforts to have the technology that would allow more free movement. But the, the technology isn't the only constraint when you're thinking about the type of behavior that's used in neuroscience because there's also the interpretability of the experiment. Yeah, you so kind of need to simplify yeah. the behavior so that you can correlate the activity of the neurons to specific components of the behavior. When the animal is behaving freely, they can do so many things, infinite things, depending on how you're defining a behavior. Um, and so the, that is The conventional to... wisdom, at least, is that, yeah, maybe keep the task simple so that you can try to understand the neurons that you do record as much as possible. Yeah. And this, I mean, we'll get to it, but, right, but this paper kind of is going against that wisdom. And, I mean, I think there's been a little bit of bucking this trend, people saying, like, yeah, but if you restrict the complexity of the task too much, you don't really learn what the, neur the neurons, the neural activity is doing, you know, kind of in a, over a, a more reasonable range of behavior. You're, you're looking, you're getting a very limited glimpse of what the neurons do by restricting the, the behavior too much. Yeah, and so some, um, depending on the type of system that's being studied, the the way in which the behavior is simplified will be different. Obviously, you know, things like uh, mazes or small open fields for rodents uh, have been used for a long time, and that's a very simplified version of the navigation that a rodent in the wild would have to do. Neuroscientists in New York, which we know a lot of, like to talk about the possibility of capturing a wild subway rat and studying because they must have great navigational skills. Um, but if you're studying something like vision, um, the stimuli will usually be kind of very simple shapes and lines on a screen, 
and the animal has some task where it knows kind of maybe eye movements it has to make in response to certain simple shapes and that kind of thing. And so these are much reduced versions of the, the rich visual tasks that we do every day and other primates and cats are assumed to be doing constantly as well. So that's kind of the groundwork to understand maybe some of the context of this article. Yes. So they they do their own little summary in like box sub like there's a box one in the paper um, where they basically talk about some trends that I think they they view as relevant. So like they talk about this trend towards like fixed animals where they're trying to do whole brain imaging, which basically means you've got like limited or unnatural behavior. They talk about another trend which is somewhat interesting in neuroscience of automatic automatic experiments where you basically like it, you know an example of this might be take take rodents and try to do many experiments with a bunch of rodents at the same time by putting them all in like semi-automated boxes where like the experiments are are, are automated um, you can get lots of data from from many animals in parallel kind of which reduces the experimenters time so that's that's kind of a cool trend for certain things but of course the the counterpoint is is that it's it's uh somewhat maybe uh, somewhat limited in terms of the range of behavior that, that you can expect to get from that. Um, and also, there's also like a, another notion of using VR experiments, so like have a virtual reality where uh, the animal is supposed to do something, but whether the animal interprets the virtual reality as like a rich enough reality for them to have kind of naturalistic behavior is something that kind of on a case-by-case basis people have to explore when they, when they try to do those experiments. I mean, and their, I think their main point about the virtual reality thing was that when you design a virtual virtual reality system, usually you have to have some behavior in mind, right? That you're trying to invoke, elicit. So you have to have studied behavior already. Yeah. And so VR setups are used already um, to some extent. For example, uh, I think David Tank was the first to do the mouse on a floating ball, uh, which is basically the setup where there's a, a mouse that is technically stationary, but it's running on a ball that, that if it tries to run, the ball will rotate so you can track the animal's running. And then there's a screen surrounding the animal that moves when the animal is running. So the animal presumably would have the sensation that it's actually moving through a maze. So like one of the VR terms for this, I think, is it's a cave. Uh, so it's where like all sides of a room are project the VR I see. setting. And so that's been used to study navigation that it allows them to use recording techniques that usually require that the animal be still, but then the animal can be doing a cognitive task where presumably it thinks it's navigating. That's the hope, at least. Yeah, and people have done similar things with flies now. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe, I mean, we can start getting to the paper, but I guess part of the motivation, as I saw it, of this paper was to sort of remind neuroscientists uh, to keep the behavior well-grounded and also that the behavior should itself be studied in a rigorous fashion. And kind of, if we just take it like that as the, as the core message, then I'm like totally sympathetic. There can be very good science uh, that's just done on behavior without any neuroscience at all. And it's kind of informative for neuroscientists. So that's, that is clearly like a related enterprise, characterizing the behavior of animals that, that that is clearly like a part of the broader endeavor of neuroscience. Yeah, so one thing like that would be, would just be like, um, let's not throw out behavior just because we're spending all our time following technologies. So that's like a kind of, it's a non-philosophical thing. It's more of a pragmatic warning. Like don't just do whatever relies on the latest technology that we find most exciting. But that's kind of not, in some sense, the more, the more main point yeah, of the I agree. paper. So, again, I mean, this is obviously reflecting a little bit of my bias. But to me, the, like, when we talked about how, like, the recording equipment for, for recording the brain changes over time, and there's always sort of a trade-off between getting rich behavior and getting really good neural activity, there's a sense in which that, like, that trade-off is a moving target. And, like, clearly there should, to me, it seems like there should be people kind of at all extremes, there should be people who are like trying to get really, really good neural activity, even if it means that the behavior is kind of impoverished, or people who are trying to get very, very good behavior with limited recording. And like, we're kind of all, there's a sense in which the whole field kind of is pushing so that the trade-off gets better and better so that people can get you know, increasingly good behavior for increasingly good neural recordings. 
and that's that's kind of just like you need people at all the extremes to explore the options um yeah the it it would make sense for these kinds of things to progress in tandem and they talk um quite a bit in this article about different like levels of explanation and they seem to support the need for algorithmic and computational levels of explanation and that's another aspect that should kind of be progressing in tandem i feel like but it seems like this article maybe wouldn't agree that they should all be progressing in tandem but that there should be more of a focus on the behavior that will yeah so if we spoil the punchline if we spoil the punchline i mean this article kind of ultimately argues and we can come back and discuss this later after going through some of the details but it kind of ultimately argues that behavior is like almost more important to study than the neurophysiology itself and or it comes first it comes certainly it comes first and and maybe that's a bit cheeky or something we can i think that's serious oh on their part (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say i think that's an accurate description of what they say no no but maybe they're being a bit cheeky we we could come back to this um cheeky (laughs) but yeah they do seem to they obviously believe that they're the the current focus in neuroscience is off and they seem to blame that on the advancements in recording technologies and the push for advancement. And, and intervention technologies. Yeah, and, and things like optogenetics, yeah. which uh, you can go back and listen to our episode on. Um, but just as, a, as a, a method of doing really specific targeted activation of brain areas or inactivation. And so people are reasonably excited about that ability. And so they're kind of applying it to all different things and making claims about brain areas being necessary or sufficient for certain tasks. And so this kind of excitement over these new methods, I think they point to as part of the problem. Also, more specifically, they say these methods, which produce a lot of data, have kind of changed the type of people who do neuroscience to be more, They I think they say like computation and data analysis centric. Yeah. And those people don't think about bigger questions or organism level questions or whatever whatever like what does it mean which i i personally has not been my experience in talking well yeah as computational people i'm quite offended (laughs) well i I don't think i'm offended i just i'm not sure i see it as like true given the people who i've interacted with in the field and to be fair i think that they were saying the um you know there's different elements of computational work in neuroscience and they do seem to be in favor of kind of the simulation based or ones that try to have a mechanistic understanding i think that they were citing these types of people is perhaps part of the problem because they assume that they're making just kind of descriptive analyses, just kind of describing what neurons are doing without making any connections to mechanisms. There definitely do exist these people who are like, oh, I'm from like, you know, I'm, I just did my undergrad in computer science and now I'm going to do neuroscience in a kind of cocky, naive way. And I'm just going to like do my statistics and like, it's just like, yeah, okay. Like... That annoys me, I have to say. I think those people should be put through some kind of like really old-fashioned, like Oxford-style education. (laughs) Yeah, they should have to learn Latin, yeah. (laughs) When I first got into neuroscience, I did find it a little bit confusing to navigate who was focusing on what problems. Hmm. Um, Right, so, I mean, there are a lot of people who are neuroscientists who are focusing on, for example, biophysics of cells. And I think you might think like, oh... Well, is that, is that like neuroscience in the sense that we really mean it? I mean, certainly it's the study of single neurons, but is there like any hope that that kind of stuff is going to be useful or interesting in bridging all the way to behavior? And I mean, I think there are clear cases where actually we found that some of that stuff is useful in going back to behavior. Or like, I mean, certainly with things like optogenetics, you can modulate behavior and optogenetics really works by, you know, you know adding ion channels to the cells. So that's a very, you know, molecular level thing where if we didn't have that understanding, we wouldn't be able to do that. And I, and I agree that there's like, you know, there, there are issues with over-hyping the extent to which optogenetics can causally intervene and like, it's not the case that because you can causally intervene, you necessarily like understood a system. I mean, that's clear. Right? Like, I mean, if you give someone a drug for something, it doesn't mean you understand the disease that that drug might modulate the effect of. You've just observed that in the past that drug has helped people, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, it, it, it is potent. I mean, there's, there's clearly, like, a risk of oversimplification. But at the same time, uh, those these techniques were, like, 
it, like suddenly we find that like actually it turned out understanding ion channels very tangibly gives us new tools which allow us to intervene and interact with biological systems and, and modulate behavior significantly and do so in ways that to some extent we have like some grounding in at, that, that in some ways transcends levels of explanation, um, right? I mean, or at least exists at multiple levels of explanation, right? We understand what's going on kind of molecularly and we have some sense, it's much coarser right now, but we have some sense of what's going on at, uh, at higher levels at like what's going on kind of at the circuit or what's going on a bit with behavior, but obviously it's, it's, it's more limited at those levels so far. I mean, obviously it matters what you're interested in. I think there are a lot of people who study neuroscience because they're interested in something more like cognition or intelligence or something. And so in that case, which ion channels and their structure, you know, that are involved in a certain neuron being active is not relevant to, presumably not very relevant to understanding the computation, as long as there's some ion channel that gives some sort of input-output function for the the neuron. Um, But a lot of people actually care about how real brains work and particularly about how human brains work and so in those cases the implementation details that are perhaps irrelevant to to people who care about more high-level processes are very important to people who care about things like developing methods or developing treatments for things yeah I mean I think you can make I mean that, that's complicated because the, the question is like well why are you interested in that you know you, a person might say, yeah, no, I'm interested in how like the human brain works, and so I'm interested in the biophysics of neurons. And that might just be a sort of misguided, like they've put too much emphasis on things that won't turn out to give them satisfying explanations. Like if, if they think, like, I'm, I'm interested in how humans behave the way they do, and I'm going to study ion channels, maybe they're just kind of wrong. And so there's, there is a potential criticism of those kinds of people. But it, like minimally from the standpoint of methods development. Like if you think, hey, in order to develop like new drugs or new uh, tools with which to probe the brain, uh, we need to understand some of the implementation details, right? I mean, like if, if you were a computer scientist like decades ago and you said, yeah, we shouldn't bother working on hardware because like all the interesting problems are computer science problems, not like semiconductor problems. I mean, that would have been short-sighted because clearly the development of faster computers that allow you to do a lot cooler things uh, is enabled by working on hardware. And this paper gets at something that um, I feel like isn't fully appreciated, which is the idea that everyone, even if you don't talk about kind of your desired level of explanation or what your real question about the brain is that has brought you to neuroscience, everyone has something implicit that they believe about what is relevant and what is interesting. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a very unified view of like... No, I don't think... It's not that each person has the same one. No, no, no. It, everyone no, no. has yeah, very different. Any, yeah, but that anybody even has any coherent... I mean, like... No, 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 not coherent. Well, it like just implicit. If, if you just looked at the l- things that they labeled as interesting... Yeah, because I mean, yeah. this, this paper talks about that explicitly. This yeah, paper, no, yeah. like, it's like when a person writes a paper and they say something like you know, this result is important or this result is fundamental or something like yeah. this. It's like, well, that, that imposes like a value judgment, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. you know. But I think my point is just that like, uh, there's a difference between a statement like, oh, this result is important that you know, arises because the person, you know, sat down 10 years previously and read a book about human relationships and thought, oh, well, I want to understand how we fall in love or something and then they went and studied the brain for 10 years to try and answer that question versus like someone was modeling through their life and they found themselves eventually doing a postdoc because of a series of like random decisions and and now they're like trying to get get a grant right and they're saying that something is important because they're trying to get people to give them money or like you know I just think those are different for some reason and Oh, no, those are clearly different, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But that doesn't negate the fact that people do have different things that they kind of honestly believe are interesting or relevant. Like, I know something about my implicit uh, biases in in this regard, that I don't care about spiking mechanisms and that kind of thing, generally. That's that's something that I can say about myself. And so I feel like this article is kind of like, you know, at, at least in part of it, it's like kind of encouraging people to look inside themselves and be more explicit about what they're finding interesting and why. 
Yeah, it seems good. So one of the things that comes up repeatedly in this article, and I think is maybe relevant for, for understanding it, is this notion of emergence and different levels of explanation. Yeah, maybe we can, maybe we can have Mars quote. Well, it's not just Mars. Yeah, yeah, I mean, emergence is... I know, thing. yeah, the general... But the, I just the, think... Yeah. I, I think this is a good quote, like... Um, Go ahead. Yeah. It's from... He's quoting Mar. I don't know where he wrote this, but... Trying to understand perception by understanding neurons, like trying to understand a bird's flight by studying only feathers. It just cannot be done. That's in... Well, whatever. I, I, yeah, so... Th- okay, so this is good, and this gets at levels of explanation in a very concrete way. The one thing that I, I do feel like was misinterpreted about that quote, or maybe not misinterpreted, but... I mean, when he says studying neurons and comparing them to feathers, I think comparing like one feather to to one neuron maybe is analogous. But if you're looking at like the whole brain, which consists of neurons, I, I mean, it, it isn't so clear to me that people really are are totally like divorcing the brain from the animal. I mean, clearly, like in early neuroscience, yeah, you might cut up the brain and look at it like outside of the body. But like when people are doing experiments where they're recording from populations of neurons. The animal it usually is behaving, and like I don't think that there are many contemporary neuroscientists who think that you should study just neurons, totally divorced from behavior. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even if they do that, sometimes they I think they recognize that it's limited. Mm. Yeah, and that other people that. are doing behavior that will help them put their work into context, even yeah. if they're not doing it directly. But okay, so so back to this this notion of emergence, right? The in in the context of this, right? What what you're saying is like there are different phenomena at kind of different levels of explanation. And I'll, I'll use phenomena kind of without vetting myself too heavily. But like, there are, there are things that happen at different levels of explanation. So like, there exist feathers, and like, many feathers and other stuff go together to form a bird. And then like, birds <laughs> interact with, <laughs> birds interact with air and other stuff uh, to fly. <laughs> And birds fly around for reasons, because like they're hunting or, or they're trying to escape or something like this. And like birds can fly because they've evolved to be able to fly in some sense. And Presumably I mean, you, because flying was useful yeah, for exactly. hunting and escaping. And so there's sort of many different levels of explanation and there's like many different kinds of things that are in, you know, in some sort of philosophy of science kind of way, to some extent, divorceable. So like the, the sort of science of or description of bird flight, it might be totally different than like the science of feathers, which is like mostly about keratin or, you know, the, the, the way that feathers like have formed or something like this. And the sort of evolutionary reasons for something might be sort of divorceable from these other things. But of course, I mean, I don't actually agree with this total separation. Like, there's there's clearly ways that these things are related. Uh, I thought they were kind of claiming, they're claiming that they shouldn't be separated, right? That you need the full. I mean, it's complicated. So, like, I uh, people use this in differently in different ways, and so like, usually in this levels of explanation kind of approach, reductionism is criticized as being an approach which looks to lower levels of explanation and kind of doesn't answer questions at the higher level where the questions were posed because it avoided them by looking at lower level. So like an obvious kind of example would be like, let's say you're interested in communication and you observe that like communication happens between two individuals, two or more individuals. And so you say, okay, in order to understand communication, I should start with like looking at one individual because you know they're a part of what's going on when people communicate. And then like you study a person and somehow there's no communication anymore. And so it's like, like, well, duh, people aren't talking when you put one person in a room by themselves or something like this. And I, I mean, you could imagine this kind of happening with like, like arbitrary phys- like physical or scientific objects of study. So like the, the criticism of reductionism there would be like, you, look, you, you posed a question about communication and you looked at a level of explanation lower than the one at which you could reasonably expect to answer that. And the sort of I think the lay intuitive reason why that like happened the way it happened would just be because like communication doesn't happen at the lower level of explanation. You actually need two component, two or more components before you even see the phenomenon. Yeah. So that the idea that you should study, you know, if you have a question, you should study it at the level that 
the objects in the question exist makes yeah. sense to me. The idea that you need an understanding of all of the layers together at once is something that I don't fully understand. And I wanted to read a part of what they say about this uh, bird and feather thing. Where, 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 what page is this on? It is on page six. So they say, uh, using the flying analogy, once we agree that bird flight is an adaptive behavior, we then determine that birds fly by flapping their wings and not by wiggling their feet. Once we have worked this out, we can start studying the feathers that make up the wing. Seen this way, understanding that the flapping of wings is critical to flight aids the subsequent understanding or subsequent study of feathers. It is unlikely from the outset studying an ostrich feather in isolation would lead to the conclusion that there is such a phenomenon as flight. So I, I understand that if you like found a feather on the ground, you wouldn't know about flight. I don't understand why knowing that flight is an adaptive behavior lets you know that the bird uses its wings and not its feet. I could not believe in evolution and I could still tell you that a bird uses its wings to fly. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but like they near the end of their paper, they say something else like the behavioral research must be considered for the most part epistemologically prior. And that is like in this case prior to the neuroscience. Um, and so this this notion that they have of, of like one level of explanation being epistemologically prior, I think, is not well defended really in the paper in any in any rigorous or evidence based way, um, but it's it's kind of in my opinion uh, uh, seems to be an expressed bias of the authors that like they find that the science is more satisfying and more theoretically well founded when you start with the behavior and then like frame the, the other kinds of explanations that direction. And uh, also I think there is a, a big emphasis when they're talking about behavior, they mean ethologically relevant behavior, like behavior that that animal would do in the wild, not yeah, yeah. behavior that you train it to do in the lab that doesn't line up with what it would do in the wild. Yeah, it always, I mean, this is maybe naive, but to me, I kind of agree insofar as you can take this levels thing seriously which obviously like it's just a, a sort of ar semi-arbitrary scheme should we um, go over the well level? so yeah the, the well just no, i mean we don't necessarily just again this like levels of explanation and mars aren't the only ones that are like like so they they kind of point this out like in, in neuroscience especially computational neuroscience maybe maybe this is also somewhat regionally specified uh people like to refer to Mars, David Marr, who was a, a neuroscientist, his, his levels of explanation, where he separates like the implementation details in the brain from the, uh, the algorithm that's being implemented by the circuit or by the, by the, by the animal and sort of the computational context for, for yeah, what- Yeah, kind of the purpose of it. The purpose of, of what that algorithm is doing. Um, but you know, like, People, you know, in this paper, they, they talk about how like Aristotle had, you know, different kinds of explanations for for causes of things, and they talk about Tim Bergen uh, having also uh, sort of taxonomized different kinds of causes. So, but in, in general, I mean, sort of in the background, there's this notion of there being different levels of explanation that we're that we're getting at, and emergence, the term, I think, just to clarify this before we proceed, tends to refer to there being new phenomena at higher levels that didn't exist at the lower levels. So like it's the it's kind of viewed in a sort of way as like almost the opposite of reductionism, though I don't think that that's really clear. Um, where like reductionism, you go to lower levels to study something and then you, you lose the phenomena. Emergence is the fact or like the observation that at higher levels of explanation, there are sometimes new phenomena that didn't really exist at the lower levels again maybe because you're now looking at like the interactions between two things or two or more things where at the lower level you were only studying one of those things so bird flocking is a classic example flocking behavior yeah. yeah or like yeah insect behavior for like eusocial insects where they have like big colonies yeah so they're doing things collectively that you couldn't study in a single individual because that it doesn't exist in a single individual it's a collective and the same kind of thing though happens like in very conventional physics like you know, something like temperature, you wouldn't really think, I mean, in like a statistical mechanics context, like temperature, it's kind of a, or pressure are kind of weird things to think about at the level of like a single particle moving around. And while you can, you know, think about it that way, 
there isn't really temperature for like one particle. There's like energy of one particle, but like when you have many particles, you have pressure and temperature, which you didn't really have when you were studying one particle. I find it a bit like I don't I don't so much care a lot about like you know which specific levels are and like the philosophy or whatever of this stuff, but I think there's some I mean, pragmatically it's important in some ways, and I think I largely agree with this kind of one point that they're making, which is I see as a kind of pragmatic point, which is if you want to study a bunch of neurons, it's helpful to have a sense of what they might be doing or to have some hypotheses about what they might be doing. And that's kind of like pretty much usually the case in decent circuit neuroscience. Isn't that true? Like, yeah, I don't... If I think of the examples that I know of yeah. of people studying circuits to figure out something, it is the case that they kind of had some idea about what that circuit, or at least a few ideas about what that circuit might be doing before they went in as opposed to like deriving the function of the circuit directly from looking at the circuits. That's one type of point that I seems like a somewhat weak point. Exactly. A lot of this, it's not clear who they're thinking about. Like when they express their bias that like people who do data analysis of big neural data sets don't know anything about behavior or and don't think about the problems in a broad way, it's not clear to me who they're talking about. So when, when they make a claim that like people in neuroscience are too willing to too willing to try to derive things totally from the neural data, like without keeping behavior in mind. I, do, I don't know who they're talking about or what kind of science. Yeah, I mean, it, it, just to describe it that way, it seems like it, that's obviously a very hard problem. Yeah, so it's You're a strong. Hand me a bunch of neurons and say like, what do they do? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I don't. I won't be able to solve that. Mm. So, uh, I mean, it does. Yeah, to me, that that seems kind of like a bit of a straw man. And I mean, there's there's another way in which. If, if we ignore the way they're putting this, this thesis forth as like behavior is somehow privileged and like kind of more important than the lower levels in some way, because it like you're more in touch with the sort of theoretically well-founded or philosophically well-founded framing of the problem, um, which I'm, I'm not exactly clear on. There's a sense in which when you capture behavior rigorously, uh, you are getting the statistics of behavior. And when you do a good job of recording neural data, you're getting the statistics of uh, neural, neural activity, and, or, or at least the signals that you can record. Um, and you, know, you can imagine that like, you, you want to do both of those well, but like, ideally, you would just want to have the joint distribution, which is to say you'd want to simultaneously record neural activity and capture behavior, and you'd want it to be as natural behavior as plausible and as like comprehensive neural activity is plausible. And that joint distribution would kind of be all there is to say descriptively about what's going on. And from that point, you would need to do causal interventions to do more than just describe the joint activity, uh, joint neural activity and behavioral activity. I mean, there's a lot you could do with just that. It would be interesting. Um, but like, to me, and somehow like the neurophenomenology is, is sort of not meaningfully different than the behavior, like both the behavior and the neural activity are things that you can describe with like probability, like you gather lots of data and you want to have like, you know, a comprehensive probability distribution over it, maybe. Of course, it would be very hard to have a full probability distribution over every single neuron. So yes, it's probably relevant to like have probability distributions only over the, the, the features of the neural data that seem most interesting. But we don't know what that is yet and we're still trying to figure that out. But that's like a very abstract description of how any science would actually happen, right? I mean, because in reality, you have to pose questions and like think of ideas and... So yeah, that is, that is the argument of this paper, right? I mean, like, I agree, you have to pose questions and think of ideas. I mean, there are people doing kind of both things. There are people, maybe, maybe I'm the kind of person who he's, uh, he's critical of, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's clearly useful to me. Uh, to build out the technology where you can record as much as possible and record as many neurons as possible and observe as much naturalistic behavior as possible. There's a sense in which, like, whenever you can do that well at any level, uh, you should then, of course, with whatever technology you have, uh, ask interesting questions and, and, like, do lots of, you know, well-thought-through science. It doesn't seem worth dismissing the people who are building those tools and, and approaches to, to gather that 
you would you would seem like you would just want people to be doing that to sort of help you out. Yeah, but if you think that if you think there's a bias and you think that resources are being like too you know too much of the pie being allocated to one thing and you think that it would be just more jointly optimal for some of that to be reallocated then it seems reasonable to come out and make a statement that like that criticizes whatever the people and and or the causes yeah they talk about like you know substitution bias you know this idea of when faced with a difficult question we often answer an easier one instead usually without noticing it it's not just that they would prefer some of the money that's going to optogenetics or whatever to go towards behavior. They also do have a problem, at least it seems, with the way optogenetics experiments are interpreted. So they, because they talk about these uh, use of filler words that yeah. kind of display that the person doesn't actually have a mechanistic understanding of, of the system that they've manipulated. And so they have these yeah. examples like, um, you know, X circuit is involved in Y behavior. And so it's like you did some experiment where you maybe optogenetically uh, silenced an area while the animal was performing a behavior and you see the behavior gets impaired. And so you can just say that the circuit is involved in it without really a mechanistic explanation of how it's involved. And some of the other words they say are uh, mediates, modulates, shapes, underlies, these kinds of things are just ways to say, I found some relationship between these things, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, I guess going back to this like joint distribution over behavior and neural, neural data, there's a sense in which I think a lot of times people are hyperbolizing how much they've understood when they've just gathered good data about some subset of that joint distribution. I'm confused about the nature of the complaint because they seem to recognize that these kinds of manipulation experiments can be useful, but only if you have rich behavior or some better understanding of the behavior or something like that. And I didn't fully understand that because in my mind, you know, if you have an animal in a lab and the animal is doing some really weird contrived task that the researcher came up with because they thought it would be useful or at least just plausible to get the animal to do, uh, whether or not that task has any relevance or relation to what the animal would do naturally, it still is the case that that animal's brain is doing something in the lab that is letting it take in inputs and give out the outputs that the experimenter was looking for. And there's a mechanism there that is causing that. And you can use uh, things like optogenetics or other manipulation techniques to figure out what that brain in that lab is doing. Perhaps you would say, you know, as a reasonable person, why would we spend our time doing that? But that's not to say that it's not possible to do that just because the behavior is weird or ill-motivated. Yeah. So the connection between the behavior, the, the need for more ethological behavior, and the sense that you can't use these kinds of experiments to get at a mechanism, I, I don't see the connection. It's not clear that they're talking about ethological behavior as opposed to just like, well, thoroughly well-characterized behavior. I think it certainly hints towards it being ethologically well-grounded. Yeah, that might yeah. be like a, in a, yeah. But it seems to me to make sense that, you know, if you don't really know what the animal is doing, then you zap some bit of its brain and now it's doing something a bit different and you now don't really know what it's doing, but, in a, but, it's, but you know that it's like slightly different in some way. That's a less informative situation than one where you have a much better sense of what it's doing. So basically just because it, you you just reduce the noise kind of so that your your observation is more, your behavioral observation is more um, Yeah, I mean but okay, so there's a different bias accurate. that's not there's there's a different bias that isn't reductionism per se, but it's some sort of like comprehensivism where like if if you're going to make an argument that like we need to totally understand the behavior before it's worth doing the neurophysiology, you're, I would say, as, as prone to a, a certain kind of failure mode as a reductionist. The reductionist will get stuck looking only at uninteresting, very low-level phenomena. The, this comprehensivist will get stuck never moving past the thing that they're trying to totally characterize that they think is epistemologically prior. Yeah, and this kind of... Um is potentially happening. I mean, in things like visual psychophysics, there's kind of a really fine-grained description of behavior in very strange circumstances, 
where you know they're showing different images at 20 milliseconds each and recording you know micro saccades or any you know stuff like that tiny tiny eye movements um so those things the doing visual psychophysics and getting very precise information from that i think is very valuable to help build neural models and to help understand neural data if you only did that i don't think you would get yeah so like if insofar as i'm already sympathetic to to some sort of scientific pluralism it seems like these people are actually somewhat less sympathetic to scientific pluralism they're kind of arguing that their way is better and or epistemologically prior whereas like it seems certainly likely to me that like like just as they're concerned that like yeah people will spend too much time and resources will be spent on like optogenetics and that'll be a dead end or something it seems like if, if you're going to try to sort of extremely comprehensively characterize behavior, maybe that'll just be a dead end. And it would be good. It'll be fortunate retrospectively had people been in parallel not pursuing that end because... I guess, it, it's, I guess it's unclear what it means to be epistemologically prior, though. I mean, because, you know, it's just not that well defined when you actually sit down to think about how should science go, because there's, it's obviously not... It's not well defined to say that we should completely characterize any behavior because behaviors aren't, they don't naturally lump into like little discrete boxes where there's like, this is behavior X and I can characterize it like to a certain percentage of completeness. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe to be a bit generous to them, I would read that as kind of like a a push to sort of say, okay, the cycle should on average be a little bit like, we characterize behaviors. Yeah, but I mean, and then we try. Sure, to, and yeah. that's clear. I mean, I think the 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 sort of the, the subtext though is that like people aren't characterizing behavior enough, and in some sense, it's like, like yeah. I mean, the in sort of obvious. That's definitely true in certain experiments. In certain experiments, that might yeah. be true. Um, but again, the sort of to me, there are different focuses. Like, if you are saying, "Yeah, I'm just trying to develop a method to k- gather as much neural recording as possible." you know to get to get to to record from as many neural sources as possible like that's a different goal in the enterprise of like science and engineering a different kind of paper than the kind of research that gives rise to like a certain scientific understanding where like yeah i mean you don't want people who are thinking that they're doing like rigorous science to only be doing methods development but Mm -hmm. i'm not sure how at risk we are of that yeah, I think yeah, that's a that's a confusing question because it is like, are people making advances to answer the question that they think that they're they're trying to answer, or are they making advances to a different, pers- perfectly reasonable question, but they're just not aware of that the fact that that's the direction. Or that are they wasting their time because they've you know poorly thought through how they should approach the question yeah. they're interested in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be interesting to know like. Uh, is it like is it possible that you know by doing lots of certain kinds of optogenetics or whatever experiments they're just going to be like a 40 year kind of waste of a lot of effort that literally like, yeah, again I mean, the, the same know, like, could hypothetically be said for certain kinds of behavior yeah right yeah. It, like if, if, if you over characterize a very useless kind of behavior i mean useless again what does useless mean in this in this context i mean we're, we're picking what kinds of things we think are worth studying in the first place. But if, if you over-characterize mm-hmm. a certain kind of behavior, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so one of the, the, to me, kind of more pragmatic reasons why you want to do careful behavioral characterization, uh, they talk about this idea of degeneracy and the fact that multiple neural circuit setups could potentially create the same behavioral effects. And so... Um, that obviously makes kind of the study of circuits that lead to that behavioral effect difficult because perhaps different uh, individuals in your set of subjects are using different neural mechanisms or an individual subject is using different mechanisms over different days or something like that. Um, And I guess potentially if you had a more rigorous characterization of the behavior, you would realize that oh, this isn't exactly the same. If they're using one neural circuit, there's this slight difference. And if they're using a different neural circuit, there's this other difference. And when you use very simplistic behavior that could be executed by many different setups of neurons, then you're not able to tell that that uh, different mechanisms are being used. Yeah, but they also discuss, so they have a figure in this paper. Figure one? Yeah, which 
basically like shows that there are many different ways that behavior and neural activity can relate. And they show both the possibility that like there are different neural activity patterns that are giving that are related to uh, using one of their you know disqualified words uh, different uh, behaviors. But then there's also the possibility that like multiple different neural activity patterns might be related to the same behavior for some reason or vice versa. Like, well, no, so the, the multiple neural patterns related to the same behavior is what I was talking about. That's the degeneracy. The one yeah. that I don't understand is the opposite, that a single neural pattern can lead to multiple different types of behavior. Because yes. presumably if you've captured the full neural activity pattern, then you could predict like, you know, the muscle movements that are going to occur. Yeah, but like, there, so there's, I mean, it could be interacting with the, the world or something like this. Like if you're, I mean, it depends on like the, the coarseness of your observations yeah. of the behavior. And that's the same with the behavior as yeah. well. So, yeah. So like if you see the guy swimming and he's swimming right because there's a current, but he's like doing the same thing with his muscles as some other time when he's okay, swimming so it depends left on something. how you're defining this. Depends on how you define it, I guess. I mean, a way in which I feel sympathetic to this in some very high level way is that I think there can be something kind of depressingly like cold about studying just brains like at a, at a very like low level, like, you know, all these studies of we recorded these few neurons in the cortex while a mouse was like touching a rod with one of its whiskers. <laughs> we cut all the other ones off. And I don't know, just something kind of like really sad about that that's in a true. way that I find, you know. Um, and like, so there's some part of me that's kind of like, oh, I really, I, you know, I romanticize the idea of being one of these like behavioral scientists. And I actually kind of lump artificial intelligence research in here too. Um, because it's kind of like it's it's got this like it's romanticizable along the lines of like you know we want to understand like the the rich nature of like intelligence like the the beauty the beauty of like you know living and or intelligent beings and like all of the complex kind of phenomena that comprise, yeah and there's something like, which is almost in a in a kind of if we, if we go back to like the whole earth cat- catalog was it there's like a kind of whole animal integrity. There's something holistic about studying like behavior yeah, in yeah, an yeah. ecosystem or something like that. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, some part of me definitely, yeah, you kind of want to be like going out into the wild and like observing the animals in their natural habitat, and then yeah. you kind of befriend them and bring them back to your lab in small <laughs> groups and reconstruct their environment, and then like you know, do like some kind of amazing fMRI thing like on them and then you and then you like reduce that down and do some other thing and then you know, you learn something and then you bring it back up. You learn something at some level and you bring it back up and it reinforms your understanding of whatever and and then you study their like the ecology of their natural habitat. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of about their it's vision and, in a in a yeah. kind of holistic way. Yeah. You know, in like in a good way. Right. Yeah, in a good way. Like and it's anti like the individual it's some there's something kind of Richard Dawkinsy, like selfish gene ish, about you know, just this is like this general philosophical kind of battle between like individualism versus like holism or something like this. I don't know. So maybe that's part of why this might be appealing sometimes. A quote in this paper is, "There is no escape from philosophy." So I guess <laughs> that's like the feeling you get if you're like in a lab and like cutting the whiskers off a a rodent. And just, you know, you're hit with that sense of like, oh, God, what does this mean? What is all of this? Yeah. And it means something, probably. <laughs> I don't know. I think that is the question, though. Does it mean something? Like, I think that's an interesting and important question. You know, like, you want a science of science also. Like, uh, in a way, I, I kind of want that. I, uh, how is it that we end up... Because that, that, to me, bears on whether or not these little kind of... to use a very <laughs> To use a very humanities term whether or not these like interventions um matter kind of or like how should we like if we're if we were sci if we were anthropologists of science how would we look at the existence or the writing of this paper you know it's it's like you know like is this just kind of part of like a natural system at some kind of semi-turbulent equilibrium where you know every so often as part of the corrective mechanism of science people write little opinion pieces and say oh no let's blah, blah. and like you know maybe this paper is actually riding on a wave that's yeah already that's, what, that's kind of my i mean this is this is my cynical view is that like this paper this paper does 
little more than like articulate the views of people who kind of are already doing this. Or at least trying to, but mm -hmm. as we said, it's hard to to study natural behavior in the lab. Yeah, yeah, but but, but like, will will their vocal? I mean, will will their articulation of it meaningfully change? I mean, we're having a conversation about it, but I think we were kind of all sympathetic. So I don't. I mean, I'm not sure that I actually had my views changed meaningfully. Um, because mm-hmm. I kind of already felt like, yeah, no, we should definitely characterize behavior. And it's like, wait, behavior is more important than the other <laughs> stuff? I, I'm not sure, sure I'd be by that. Yeah, it's like I agreed with the high-level conclusions, but not the implementation details of this exact argument. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is, and maybe it's kind of the same way that, like, in the broader media, there's sort of bubble. Uh, there's sort of a bubble. Like, the people who will think about this are the people who kind of yeah, like, I think behavior needs to get more of a focus. And, like, the people who aren't doing that, this won't get read by them. <laughs> I do think, yeah, mm. the using more ethologically relevant behavior seems like a safer bet, at least, because you can have a reason to believe that what you learn from that will generalize more than whatever you're learning from very weird, contrived behaviors. And so purely pragmatically, I'm in favor of that. I. I don't uh, yeah, I, uh, need the yeah. philosophical argument necessarily. I'm aesthetically in favor of pluralism, I think. Um, no, seriously. No, I understand. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's an interesting and kind of funny way, although I did, I did notice that one of the co-authors on this paper is from an Institute for Empirical Aesthetics, um, right. the final co-author. Yeah. But, no, uh, yeah, I mean, I think... I think there is an aesthetic case to be made, actually, for like having there be diversity or focusing on certain questions over other questions. But it, I, I do find it, yeah, I mean, maybe the only way you change people's opinions on that is to be persuasive. And if anything, this paper is just trying to persuade people to like change their opinion on what they yeah. find aesthetically pleasing. And I mean, it gives something for people who want to pursue more uh, intricate behaviors and characterized behavior, they can now cite something as like, there's been a clear call for this in the field. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And no, I think that that is a real thing, because I have to say, like, I read this paper and then, coincidentally, I had read similar papers before um, this one in the last few months, like about, I've been reading about ethology and stuff, and it's, it's definitely like, yeah, it is like there is that minor effect of some kind of slightly empowering thing, maybe. Like, if it's it's possible that if you know, if there are more of such papers being like, oh, this particular direction is the right thing, then you know, maybe some young people who are trying to like choose directions are influenced by that or something. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it makes me want to have more of a theory of how science works. But <laughs> That's an interesting like... takeaway from this. <laughs> yeah. Is it that, like, in the background, your question is, like, is this productive? Was this... It, this the, the writing yeah. of this article? The behavior of scientists? It's... Do you want to have a, a clear model of that? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, because, you know, like, anytime someone makes an argument, basically, like, anytime someone makes an argument, like, oh, we need to do more of this. And, and I think we all do that, like, either more formally by writing, say, things like this, this article or just you know in our conversations you know scientists do this all the time and and also non-scientists do this about science also right like people just discuss what they would like to kind of know about and then whatever or need to or, or so on and so on um in some sense one could study anything and so you can so then like you're kind of it's natural enough to end up having conversations about oh but what should we really be doing like at all and so the question is just like are those conversations ever anything other than just entertainment, kind of, like... Or something which reflects the character of the people who participate in them. Yeah, or... I mean, if someone, if John Krakauer is on a, a grant uh, committee, you know, yeah, right. knowing his views on this will guide people in their, the grants that they propose and they'll include more behavior and that'll get studied. And so I think it can definitely have an, an impact. Yeah, but it's, it's not just that, because, I mean, also everyone reviews, everyone in science reviews. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's this, there's another sense in which casually this is like a plea to people when they're reviewing work on these kinds of topics to be maybe yeah. more sympathetic to it. Whether there's actually some right answer for what we should be focusing on. I mean, I that's clearly, yeah, yeah. That's a much, it's a much different question. So, I mean, we, I, I guess we can probably leave it at this. And, I mean, I think I, I'll, I'll read one more quote from the conclusion. 
Uh, here we have argued that when scientists ask, how does the brain generate behavior, they are in fact asking a question best approached through behavioral work, specifically task analysis aided by theory that allows behavior to be decomposed into separable modules and processing operations. I guess that's the that's their takeaway, which I, I'm, I'm conflicted. Again, I, I kind of agree with I kind of agree with the some of the main thrusts, but the claim that uh, and they claim this explicitly earlier that when someone asks how does the brain produce a behavior, they're really asking why is that behavior produced and then how does it do it. I don't necessarily agree with. Sometimes I'm just asking how. And then sometimes I think people think they know why it's produced already, and so they're really just asking how. Yeah. And mm. it's compelling that we should be looking at behavior and characterizing mm. it rigorously, but there are some weird details of this argument. Yeah. All right. Till next time. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast, give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks.